it's in the interest of states to have uh, rules. So, um, and I think that those rules are, you know, in the interest of the broader community as well. We could call them vague, or we could say that they provide a framework for responsible behaviour with, you know, the possibility of some flexibility of action for states. And, you know, states are, you know, the ones that are authors of international law and they're the subjects of international law. And I think you know, it really comes down to a sort of existential question almost about whether you think the international rule of law is a good thing. Uh, and as I say, I think especially in this global I, I, world... I'm, I'm really you know. I'm raising the question whether it's a thing at all. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 313 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here do not reflect those of uh, our uh, clients, uh, our institutions, uh, the families that uh, are stuck listening to us uh, uh, during the lockdown. Uh, um, and today I'm going to be interviewing uh, uh, Harriet Moynihan, a senior research fellow from uh, the International Law Program at Chatham House, uh, uh, where I am sure we will disagree about uh, uh, the role of international law in cyber war. But before that, we're going to do the news roundup with Maury Schenk, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, uh, formerly uh, in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Uh, Nick Weaver, uh, who is a senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. And of course, I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. And the host of today's program. So let's just jump right in. Team Telecom, uh, now that they've got a new name with an unpronounceable uh, uh, acronym, uh, um, is taking a kind of surprising fire from the Senate. David, uh, uh, you used to oversee Team Telecom. Uh, When was the last time you were criticized for not being tough enough on Chinese investment? Yeah. So in in my day, um, if anything, uh, you know, the pr- the pressure would go in both directions, sort of unpredictably, um, whether through CFIUS or whether through Team Telecom. Uh, everybody remembers the Dubai ports, or many people remember the Dubai ports uh, issues that arose during the Bush administration. I still have the scars from that. Right. Uh, I must have testified uh, ten times. <laughs> the the I mean, it's from the perspective of the executive branch, at least, it's safe to say that Congress is always ready to say, uh, why did you not do 10 years ago what we have now decided you should have been doing 10 years ago? Uh, And the pendulum swings back and forth with the retroactive lens. Um, But look, I think one of the things the Trump administration has figured out correctly, uh, in my view, and this is not something I say, you know, every day, uh, but they've got this right, which is that China is a genuine you know, threat in the area, uh, an adversary in the area of technology um, and in particular telecommunications. And we've seen a lot of fussing about Huawei equipment going into networks. And here you have Team Telecom recommending to the FCC and the FCC taking action to either revoke or not renew licenses for Chinese providers of communication service in the U.S. You have in May of 2019, uh, China Mobile uh, USA's application was denied, and now you have a show cause order on four other providers as to why they shouldn't have their licenses taken away. Uh, and you've got the Senate, you know, saying more, more, more. 
uh, and it seems likely this is going to happen. Um, the question is sort of whether you know the the Trump administration can manage to hold the line consistently here in the U.S. and recruit allies to do this across the West. Um, that would require, I think, focusing on this and not getting confused and tangled up with fights about soybeans and maple syrup tariffs with our adversaries and allies alike. Uh, so this, I think this pressure is going to continue and I would expect continued aggressive action. I would expect the FCC to fall right in line with Team Telecom's recommendations. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, and this is a bipartisan Senate letter criticizing Team Telecom for not having done this uh, earlier. Uh, and and they've, they've got some points. Uh, but, you know, Baker's law of... Uh, uh, congressional criticism uh, is that when you're in the executive branch, you're going to be criticized by Congress. Uh, and what you want more than anything is for Congress to be criticizing you for not having done enough of the things you actually want to do. Right. So that's that seems to be what's going on here. Maury, um, uh, I... Uh, this story appealed to me mainly because of the press response, but uh, it's a it's a more serious uh, uh, issue than that. Vietnam has apparently been caught trying to hack Chinese government health agencies. Is that right? Yeah. So FireEye's Mandian division has uh, apparently pretty persuasive evidence that early um, in the COVID-19 crisis, uh, APT32, which is a Vietnam government-associated hacking unit, was sending spear phishing emails to various Chinese government bodies associated with the COVID-19 response. The suggestion is that they wanted to figure out what the Chinese were doing, you know, to, and maybe to protect themselves. I checked this morning, there's only been 270 cases reported in Vietnam and no deaths, uh, if you believe those numbers. So maybe they're doing a pretty good IG, uh, you know, job. We're going to be talking later about privacy for contact tracing. You know, if you support uh, suspending privacy rules, do you support state hacking as well to try to figure out what your response strategy should be? Also, I'm not sure if you can trust the Vietnamese numbers since we know that was how the TR got infected. Yeah, that's I, I, it, it's highly unlikely that the uh, numbers are trustworthy, uh, uh, both Vietnam and China. Uh, Vietnam is basically following China's lead on uh, how, uh, how much information to actually disclose. But I have to love the foreign ministry statement uh, um, when accused of uh, hacking China. They said, this accusation is baseless. Vietnam forbids all cyber attacks, which should be denounced and strictly dealt with by law. Uh, and we're willing to cooperate with international partners to combat these cyber attacks. I, I, I have to think that they just Xeroxed a Chinese government statement when it was accused by the United States of hacking uh, U.S. Uh, uh, government agencies. It's, uh, it's too close to the bone here not to have been uh, designed with a certain mischievous spirit. Yeah, well... It's the Chinese are good at this stuff, right? Yeah. So uh, might as well copy the masters. So we're still seeing a lot more developments in a topic that's becoming a continuing feature of the uh, podcast, uh, which is using mobile phones to trace uh, infections and to notify people that they may have been close to folks who were infected. Uh, uh, 
famously, of course, uh, uh, Google and Apple got together and said, you're going to need us to re- relax some of our policies, and we're glad to do it if you adopt the structure and architecture that we have designed. And um, what we're starting to see, uh, uh, Nick, is a gradual, I, I think it's a surprising amount of uh, uh, you could call it arrogance or you could call it toughness on the part of Google and Apple basically saying, do it our way or it's we're not going to uh, let you do it at all on our phones. Uh, and increasingly, it looks as though most government agencies are bending their knee to Google and Apple. Well, truth be told, it's because the Google and Apple protocol does everything that is needed for public health. So... You can. So you say. I know I disagree on that. Right. And that's why I'm writing it up uh, so that it's in writing. Why? Because that's going to be one of the keys going forward that this thing is so deadly that we have to think about containment until there's a vaccine. Um, Because short of it, it's a nightmare. Um, The interesting thing is, is uh, the Google Apple model is really nice for everybody but law enforcement. Its distributed nature still allows everything that the public health wants. The other thing that's interesting is the European competing protocol, which isn't privacy sensitive. Um, Wait, it's got privacy in the name. It must be privacy sensitive. That one's just falling apart. So like the Fraunhofer Institute has withdrawn, others have withdrawn. I think under the realization that they're being way too opaque to get widespread adoption because this needs widespread adoption. So they, uh, and I I agree. And one of the worries, I think if you're a government and you are disinclined to follow the Google, uh, Apple model uh, is that Google and Apple will poison the well and, and you will never get the the kind of uh, market share that you need. Um, There is a, uh, I would say that, Google and Apple clearly did not imagine that their app was going to be used uh, to notify uh, the health authorities and the health authorities would then call people uh, and talk them through this. Uh, uh, They originally envisioned this, I am quite confident, as pretty automatic and cutting government completely out, uh, that uh, when you uh, got your uh, uh, test results that said you were positive, uh, you were supposed to uh, hit a button and a notice went out to everybody. No. Uh, well, uh, that clearly no. is not what they're doing. And this is, yeah, that has actually never been the model because the model has always been it's the health service that includes entries in the database. So that's to prevent the griefer problem. So, so you're, you're, you're right that, the, that what we're seeing from some of these uh, uh, in the Australian model, for example, is that there's a guarantee that the Australian health authorities will get the notice. And it looks as though they'll, they'll get the notice and then they'll decide how to tell people that they've potentially been infected. Right. And that is orthogonal to whether you centralize or distribute the data. And... Apple always had the model that the health department is involved in tracking the data to at least some degree, because the Apple protocol specifically says it is the health department's responsibility to maintain the database. So the the notion that this is 
decentralized, um, which was the selling point, is a little shaky now that we've brought the health authorities into it and given them access to all this data. Uh, uh, but it is still, I, I think, suffers from some of the uh, flaws of the original program. Uh, uh, there's lots of friction here uh, from, are you going to install it? Well, do you know that this app is available? Are you going to install it? That's all stuff that kind of has to happen one person by one person, which is going to slow down adoption or maybe cause it to fail. Um, then you have to enter a bunch of data about yourself, probably less data or more data than uh, Google and Apple originally thought you were going to be entering. Uh, uh, and that means it'll slow the process down even further as you say, ah, oh, too many fields to fill out. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Actually, a lot of it is app design that can relieve a lot of that friction. So the phone, you can ask for what is my phone number and username and autofill the contacts. And Apple in particular has a lot of experience in making low friction um, health apps. I would like to see it, but there is still the, the, the friction point of having to decide to install it. But maybe even more important, when uh, you get notification that you've tested positive, you've gotten um, all the benefit, probably because you were warned to go get tested. Uh, you've gotten all the benefit out of this, your app you're going to get. Uh, and so the Google and Apple, however, say, well, we're just going to hope that you decide to send the notice. So there's no way to enforce that. There's no automaticity to it. Uh, there's no, uh, the health authorities don't get to decide that until you decide to push a button that says, yes, please notify the health authorities who will then be calling you and talking to you about this. Uh, and I think that it's distinctly possible that, that people will just say, well, what good do I get out of that? I'm just going to get in trouble with somebody. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for the testing results. Uh, uh, I'm going to uh, skip the notification process. Uh, that's all because Google and Apple chose this uh, allegedly decentralized solution. Um, the centralization does not actually get you the notification problem either. It's In order to do that, it's a matter of app design that's orthogonal to where the data is stored. And that's really key for adoption purposes. Do you really want the government knowing everybody you've contacted going back how long and just a pinky swear that they're not going to use it for other purposes? They don't actually necessarily know who they they know that there are these uh, um, I, uh, the, these identifiers. No, they don't know who the, the whole who's... point of the. Uh, European protocol is that the health department can, without user consent, know whose seeds are whose, and therefore you do have this global database of everybody who contacted everybody else that's hot called private. Well, they, they they protect it the way they would you would protect any database. This is like three weeks worth of contacts. I'm not you know this is not uh, uh, a useful law enforcement database. I mean, your law enforcement's been cut out of this because there's no law enforcement interest in this. Uh, what do you uh, think it's uh, not the whole thing is it was designed by people who are paranoid about uh, central authority, uh, whether or not that makes sense in the context. The, 
the European model, the French model, is a godsend for law enforcement because it's even more powerful than Google's uh, geofence warrants. So France has not quite given up. They're going to have a debate and a vote in the, the assembly in the next couple of days. Germany, it sounds like, has given up and said, oh, yes, Gapel, you know best. We'll do it, we'll do it your way. Uh, Australia has, has, as I said, kind of come up with the most health authority friendly uh, adoption or adaptation of the uh, uh, the Gapel uh, uh, plan for, uh, for doing this. And Israel apparently is still sticking with its intelligence-driven, location-based analysis, I which I find uh, weird. that the Israeli Supreme Court just uh, nixed that because it wasn't approved by a proper government. So we'll see if they restate. That was their quarantine stuff. That was their quarantine stuff. You're right. They, the, the Israeli Supreme Court said, uh, 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 you, well, the, the Israeli Supreme Court had said, you cannot do this without uh, legislative approval. But now there is a, a kind of government, uh, a, and uh, it has been approved. Uh, uh, but no, they specifically block the uh, Shin Bet stuff as well until there's formal government really? approval. Yep. Okay. So this yesterday. is this is this is news. Yes. All right. So uh, well, I always thought that was weird because the the the, the use of Shin Bet location is going to have all kinds of uh, accuracy problems uh, uh, and isn't really built for this. Uh, I would have thought they'd move over to uh, a, uh, uh, a Bluetooth-enabled system. It may just be that they have more of an adoption problem than we think. Uh, 15% of Israel is uh, Palestinian Arabs uh, who uh, wouldn't do anything to give the government uh, the time of day, let alone their uh, location data. And uh, the ultra-Orthodox are not particularly technically sophisticated, aren't likely to have smartphones. Uh, That's another big chunk of the population. So you could end up, if you try to do something voluntary, only getting 40% of the population. Yeah, so we'll see. All right. So we will we will see where this uh, where France goes. I just I have to say I am just astonished. It doesn't bother you at all, Nick, uh Maury, uh, uh that two big tech companies are basically saying to the governments of Europe and the rest of the world to um We've decided this is the way to protect privacy, and you'll either do it the way we say or not at all. You know, your article in The Atlantic, Stuart, I found interesting you being quoted to say, well, we're being asked to do a lot worse. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that's, a re- you know, I'm, uh, I'm much more in the privacy protective camp than you are, but I think that's a pretty powerful argument. The thing I find persuasive, though, is the adoption argument. You know, I, I think... Um, I'm with Nick that, you know, we need the privacy protections to get this thing adopted. And that's what really counts here. And I think that that's what's forceful about the position of Google and Apple. And the other thing is that Google and Apple's position is aligned with almost all the independent experts. It's only 
a few... Oh, all the independent paranoids who have been doing this for 40 no, years, kind of whining too. about the government and designing government-proof systems. Uh, uh, they never thought about uh, how to deal with a uh, pandemic, and, and they're not... They're, they're basically going back to their corner because it's comfortable rather than thinking about the, how to solve this particular problem with tech. Disagree. All right. Let me, let, let's, let's move on uh, now that we've resolved that. Um, <laughs> so, David, um, yeah. uh, senators uh, uh, are also eager to have Cyber Command and uh, uh, DHS's CISA do more to deter coronavirus hackers. Yeah. I, and I gather what they're thinking is that we ought to treat the coronavirus hackers, people who are doing ransomware attacks and the like, m- more as though they were foreign state hackers. Is is uh, is that the idea? That appears to be the idea. This is another bipartisan congressional effort to demand more from the executive branch in keeping with what you earlier mentioned as Baker's law. It, it expressly mentions uh, APT 41 and nation state cyber hackers and talks about the campaigns of misinformation and disinformation around coronavirus, as well as other hacking, ransomware and the like. Um, so as everybody knows, coronavirus Uh, has spawned lots of new crimes from price gouging and fake cures and supplies, investment scams, and of course, cyber galore. And the U.S. government's cyber strategy and DOD's strategy is what they call defend forward, which is a little bit of a euphemism uh, and largely depends on, you know, new authorities from the 2019 Defense Authorization Act and policies like an SPM 13 that delegates uh, authority down uh, in the military, at least as it's been described by uh, Trump administration folks, um, and has produced a lot of very aggressive operational conduct that's been successful in other areas, um, maybe most notably. If I, if I could, if I could just interrupt you briefly there, I uh, yes. not so long ago tweeted a um, a clip, which basically said. You know, I, I finally figured out uh, what defending forward is. If we were, <laughs> right. if we were talking about it in the context of football, it would be pass interference. <laughs> I see. Okay, right. That's not bad, except I actually think it, it may be more like a blitz. Um, I mean, it it is, you know, defending against attacks uh, at the home of the adversary who's going to launch the attacks. And, you know, the most prominent example of it is, General Nakasone's testimony on Valentine's Day a year ago um, around the successful defense of the 2018 midterm elections, uh, where in in front of SASC, he talks about the Russia small group and what they did. Um, So as you said in the the intro to this, I mean, if it's nation state hackers that are doing this, and, and the letter from our friends in the Senate does refer to that, you know, that's that's one thing. If it's private criminal groups trying to profit, I think the authorities question gets much, much harder for NSA. DHS and and others might have more domestic law enforcement authority they could bring to bear. But of course, they don't have the expertise that NSA and Cyber Command can bring to the table and the capacities to do it. So it's, you know, the the letter is actually nice in the sense that it's more more of that do more and, you know, keep going and it's not uh, too snarky. Um, but there are some tough questions around who is doing this and therefore who can be, uh, you know, met in a defense forward posture here. 
Um, and whether we really want to unleash cyber command in the NSA against criminal threats, uh, some of whom might be using U.S. infrastructure and the like. There's a whole set of issues for the lawyers to sort out there at a minimum. So I'm guessing that they'll sort it out in Australia and maybe the UK first. I think the Australian uh, uh, cyber authorities uh, uh, or military uh, at heart uh, or intel at heart uh, uh, bragged about taking down some uh, – uh, the people who are interfering with health operations or sending out coronavirus uh, um, uh, hacks. Um, and they did not say it was a nation state. Uh, if I remember right, it was uh, criminal acts. So um, this is one where, again, probably five, several of the five eyes are out ahead of uh, NSA, partly because they don't have the uh, distinction between Milita- protecting military systems and protecting civilian systems that uh, uh, we have here. We we ought to talk law briefly, at least. Uh, Amori, is it malpractice to uh, fail to protect a uh, client's files from Chinese government hackers? Well, we don't know yet, but uh, the case you're talking about, Stuart, involved Guo Wengui, who was a Chinese billionaire in healthcare and property. He fell out with the Chinese Communist Party over allegations that he had discovered corruption or maybe just didn't know the right people. But in any case, he flew, fled to the U.S., sought asylum, hired New York law firm Clark Hill for his asylum case and told them that they should expect to be hacked, not to put the, his documents on their servers. They did. They were hacked. His documents got published. And uh, he's accused them of malpractice. And the court has refused to throw out the case. Um, on the basis that they specifically said they wouldn't put the, the documents on the servers, they knew of the risk, or at least he's alleged that, and that was enough to survive a motion to dismiss. Yeah, you got you got the, you got a sense reading the opinion that the the judge wasn't sure he was going to be able to make good on the claims that were in his uh, complaint, but that since he made them, uh, they survived the motion to dismiss. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, he, he dismissed the the law firm also withdrew that saying it had a conflict once all this had happened. And and uh, they he dismissed those claims for that withdrawing that there was something wrong for it. He dismissed claims for punitive damages. So he clearly didn't think the law firm were bad guys. But um, I think the judge was probably right that it was it was enough to survive a motion to dismiss. I, I think there is a there, there. There's pretty clearly an ethical duty to protect the confidentiality of uh, uh, things that clients say to you, uh, and, and that doesn't mean that you're guaranteeing that uh, no hacker on earth could ever get access to them. But you probably have to take reasonable uh, efforts to uh, to protect them. Uh, and uh, uh, the question then is, did they do what was reasonable in the context of uh, a client who is a high profile target of uh, Chinese government ire? Yeah. And, and according to him, had they had specifically agreed not to put the documents on the server and they did. So the judge even upheld a breach of contract claim. So I think it really comes absolutely on the facts of this case. It's a colorable claim. All right. Well, we'll see that playing out for a while. Uh, I cannot believe that three years after the shadow brokers leak, 
we are NSA is still suffering pain, and we're still finding new things in the uh, in the leak. Nick, uh, this um, uh, this is not an aspect of the shadow brokers leak that I had focused on before. Me neither. And truth be told, it isn't pain. It should be the victory dance. Well, yes, we should be we should be praising them for being so far ahead of the private sector. But still, uh, we're discovering uh, one by one their secrets still. Right. Although in this case, it was that the NSA knew about some threat actors that haven't been publicly identified yet, that the tools included a script to check for a bunch of other actors and in that there was information about groups that hadn't been identified yet, and one of them was just identified. And so as shadow brokers leaks go, this didn't really damage the NSA. This is more like showing they have the right to spike the football for the job they're doing. Well, don't you think that everybody who is breaking into systems now can look through that list and say, does that look like our TTP? And if it does, they have to change them. So uh, I think it does hurt the uh, the NSA. Except uh, that that damage happened three years ago. Right. Okay. That's Fair the enough. point. That right. damage so, already occurred three years ago. So, yeah. So uh, uh, this does remind me uh, uh, when everybody was talking about uh, – uh, how DES had probably been, uh, you know, the, the digital encryption standard had been uh, uh, almost certainly buggered by uh, NSA, and and they were looking at all these changes that NSA suggested uh, with suspicion. And about ten years later, somebody discovered an attack and went back and looked at uh, changes that NSA had suggested in uh, DES and said, "Huh, they suggested that." Uh, they make this change to protect against this just discovered method for attacking an encryption algorithm. So it does tell you that uh, NSA is still well ahead of uh, most folks uh, uh, in what it does best. Yes. And that particular attack was called differential cryptanalysis. Got it. So um, Facebook filed another, uh, I mean, another filing in its uh, fight with NSO Group, uh, uh, suing NSO Group. Uh, and NSO is saying you don't have jurisdiction. And there were a bunch of stories saying, oh, look, uh, Facebook has accused NSO Group of using U.S. servers. Uh, I ended up thinking that's not even worth writing a story about, but maybe you see it differently. Um, Yes, because it has big effects on NSO groups trying to duck the lawsuit. It's a jurisdiction. Yes, it is. It is. It it undercuts their argument that you don't have jurisdiction over me because I don't do anything in in California. And they said, well, what about all of the the, all of the servers you were using to launch your attacks uh, there in California? Also, more importantly, it strongly suggests that NSO group is a much more active participant, that the exploits it's dealing with are really high-end, high-grade stuff. Do you really want random Middle Eastern countries that you're selling to to have unrestricted access to the exploits? No. So they're probably doing more of a hacking as a service where they are the ones that launch the initial attack. Um, And this would mean also that the Israeli government would have probable insights, which is probably why they allow them to be sold to Middle Eastern frenemies. 
Um, but it also really attacks NSO Group's argument that uh, we're just the uh, manufacturer. We aren't the deployer when it looks like they may very well be actively involved in the exploitation process of individual targets. Fair enough. I think I think both of those things are true. It's going to be hard for them to launch a Pontius Pilate defense, and it's going to be hard for them to, to say, we're over here in uh, the Middle East, and uh, California is too far away to be, for us to be sued there. David, um, IBM has come in for some criticism for the way it handled the disclosure of several zero days where it basically blew off the guy who reported them. Um, and then when he published them, uh, had to admit it had screwed up. I didn't fully follow all of that. Uh, um, how embarrassed should IBM be over this? Well, um, if you take seriously the media coverage on this, which seems to be accurate and seems to rely on an actual communications that have been added. It's pretty embarrassing because, you know, IBM, like other companies, operates bug bounty programs in which it basically sets up a website, establishes criteria and invites uh, white hat researchers to submit vulnerabilities for assessment and sometimes a small reward. And here, a researcher submitted some uh, vulnerabilities, but IBM responded saying these are out of scope for our program because uh, apparently they pertain to vulnerabilities only for our highest paying clients. Uh, so we're not going <laughs> to. So we're not going to so, take that. So um, that's their problem, no. <laughs> right? So I don't know if if that is correct or what, but that is what the coverage is. And I mean, I I think the story is interesting because sort of you know particulars aside, I think it shows, and increasingly we see evidence in this and other things that the ecosystem for managing zero-day exploits is just not stable. Uh, and there are real limits on these passive bug bounty programs that uh, providers are operating. Um, but there are also you know, real difficulties in trying to be more expansive and operating an active program or doing other things. And there's the potential for misuse. I mean, Uber most famously got into a lot of trouble for trying to use a bug bounty program to conceal more or less uh, a breach of data, uh, and and you can screw up the management of these things. And it just, it feels to me like this is an area where more work is going to need to be done and a different calibration of risks and benefits may need to be undertaken by these, these companies because it, it just doesn't seem like the job is getting done as well as it should right now. I think you're right. I think there is a tendency, even among sophisticated companies, to think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a bug bounty program. Uh, and then I can kick back. Uh, but if you're going to do a bug bounty program, you have to have a way to evaluate the bugs that people bring to you. And you have to you have to be good at it. Uh, and you can delegate some of it, but not all of it. Uh, and so um, I think... Um, DHS, when they urged uh, other agencies to adopt bug bounty programs, actually said, we're not telling you to do a bug bounty program, but we are telling you to come up with a, uh, a, a mechanism for handling disclosure of vulnerabilities so that you've got right. somebody who's reading the, uh, uh, the, uh, the bug reports and thinking about how to respond to them. And they have to be somebody who has discretion and is competent. And it looks like that may have been the problem here. No, that's exactly right. DHS did not require rewards, bounties for bugs, but they did sort of say for government agencies, you've got to be able to receive 
and assess submissions that are brought to you. Having said that, obviously, a number of agencies have done reward programs, not really, really big dollars, but they have, you know, hacked the Pentagon and so forth. Um, and they sometimes will do an organized crowdsource red hat, a red team attack uh, on things and so forth. It, it's actually an area where the government may not be as far behind the private sector as some people might normally expect. But the state of the art, I think, uh, needs some work. Yeah, I, I think the general view, uh, even among bug bounty programs, is your bug bounty program goes in after you know you've got a good vulnerability disclosure policy. I, right. And uh, uh, it's kind of the cherry on top of the whipped cream. All right, um, it, Maury, uh, Amazon uh, has been accused from time to time of exploiting its third-party sellers, and it's got a lot of them, probably more than half of what they sell is somebody else's stuff selling through Amazon. Um, and then the the fear on the part of those people has been that uh, Amazon um, watches who's doing well and figures out uh, if this guy is doing that well with this product, why don't we make one too? Uh, and then... Um, the biggest concern on the part of uh, sellers is uh, Amazon's got all my data uh, for all of my sales. They can they can do a very fine tuned analysis of the uh, product uh, of the sales, uh, and uh, and then that enables them to make good decisions about whether to make this product themselves. What Amazon has responded to, uh, 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 when charged with that, they have said, we only look at those that data in aggregate. And they recently told Congress that. Now there's a Wall Street Journal article that suggests that maybe that's not so. Yeah, so the Wall Street Journal article seems focused on investigation of one product, a, a trunk organizer product. And I didn't even know a trunk organizers were a thing, but apparently they sold a lot of them. Um, and there was one company that sold almost all of them that seems upset about this. So I think it's hard to tell based upon the article how widespread this pro you know this was at Amazon, whether it was an internal group that circumvented internal restrictions. But if it's been done on a widespread basis, you could see why third party sellers would be concerned and could it lead to a class action? Maybe. The, the, the chair of the uh, House subcommittee that where Amazon testified that they only used aggregate data uh, is already saying that they maybe misrepresented things. So it could lead to some political issues. And when, you know, one thinks that these, this kind of antitrust and related political restraints uh, is about the only thing that's going to keep Amazon, you know, that's going to stop its juggernaut taking over many areas of the economy. So um, you got to take this seriously, whichever side of, you know, whatever you think about restricting Amazon. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, uh, the, I was struck by the fact that apparently uh, this product to the trunk organizer uh, um, was one company's uh, uh, product. Uh, and then there was one other, uh, you know, and they sold hundreds, if not thousands of the, uh, uh, the trunk organizers. And then some other company had sold 17 so that you could technically say, well, we looked at aggregate data, 
Um, but that would be um, uh, inconsistent with uh, uh, reason. Um, and so uh, what I suspect is going to be the case is uh, it wasn't false, but uh, in defend, if, they, if their defense is, well, it was aggregate data because there was this other guy who had 17 sales, uh, um, they're, they're not going to come out of the, uh, the PR fight looking good. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned that so much of U.S. e-commerce is on Amazon that people, um, people are reluctant not to sell there. You point out, it's an interesting point that if you dominate the market for something, then it becomes riskier to go on Amazon. They're going to be able to use it to attack your advantage as opposed to a competitive market where there's lots of sellers. Uh, that's a really interesting dynamic. I, I don't think off the top of my head I can figure out how that plays out, but it's uh, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, I years ago when Microsoft was in that position, where you know basically they they supported everybody's applications uh, and they they made some applications of their own. Uh, uh, somebody once said to me, this was kind of 1996. Uh, uh, the key with uh, with developing a new application is you don't go to uh, Microsoft to explain how it will use their APIs until it's too late for them to steal it. Um, and, and I think that spirit is the spirit of anybody who deals with a platform, is that you worry that they will uh, take advantage of their middleman position to oust you in the short term or the long term. All right, let's do some quick hits uh, uh, and uh, move on to our interview. Uh, Vimeo, uh, which is YouTube's competitor, has uh, uh, demonstrated that uh, it's certainly willing to compete in political correctness. Uh, it um, has refused to do business and allow uh, 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 videos from uh, a the American Family Association, which is basically a 1980s Christian right group uh, like uh, uh, Family Research Council and the others. Uh, And the reason it won't allow them on is because it says the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, has described them as a hate group. Given a choice between the Southern Poverty Law Center and the American Family Association had to pick one as as a hate group, there isn't any doubt. The SPLC is a left-wing smear hate group designed to uh, uh, to shut the Overton window on conservatives uh, uh, and indeed inspired a, uh, a terrorist attack on one of the groups, one of the Christian right groups they described as a hate group. Uh, so they, uh, 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 it, Vimeo really does not deserve any credit for uh, uh, refusing to make its own determinations and hiding behind the SPLC. Uh, Now, Crown Sterling and Black Hat, you remember we covered them. Uh, Crown Sterling were the guys who had the uh, um, uh, uh, special brew that they wanted to tell everybody at Black Hat. They paid a lot of money to get uh, a a special slot. Uh, And then when they showed up, everybody trashed them. Uh, And Black Hat apologized for even allowing them at the meeting. Crown Sterling said, well, that's defamation. We're going to sue you. Uh, Nick, how'd it turn out? Okay. Headline, litigious asshat sues black hat, gets away with uh, a non-apology apology, a confidential settlement that just basically says black hat says, uh, 
yeah, we probably should have done a better job evaluating your snake oil before you tried to hawk your snake oil to our crowd. Yeah, so it, so it, 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 you you could read it as uh, we're really apologizing to everybody for letting you come to Black Hat, or it's an apology to uh, Crown Sterling for uh, uh, not having told them that they might be embarrassed by what Crown Sterling was selling. Okay, but I, I got to come in on Nick here and just say this is twice in a row where he deserves great credit. I mean, last time it was hate groups spewing cyanide-laced haterade, and this time it's asshat sues black hat. And I, I, think, I, I just right. think you're on a roll, brother. Keep up the yes, good work. <laughs> yep. Don't encourage him. He'll he'll start he'll start stretching. But that that was I was impressed. That was a good one. Uh, all right, and. Uh, to everybody's surprise, Mark Rotenberg, uh, who founded uh, Epic uh, and has been running it since 1994, is out. Uh, and arguably because of his defense of his own privacy about uh, his uh, positive status and need for a COVID-19 test, uh, he apparently uh, was not feeling well on returning from a uh, uh, overseas trip, went to his doctor the, uh, the doctor said you should get a test. Uh, he went to the office and that's where he got the test results. And everybody who worked with him said, you surely shouldn't have come to the office. Um, and then he said, oh, and by the way, I'm not sure we have enough money to get through uh, the rest of the year um, and pay everybody's salaries. And that apparently provoked uh, the board to say, um, he's out. We're putting in the general counsel uh, to run the place on an interim basis. So um, correction, I, it was yeah. even worse. It was. It was even worse. He got the call at work that he was positive. He went home and did not tell the employees. The reason the employees found out is because the health department called all of them for contact tracing purposes, and they figured out it was him. Aha. Well, and, and uh, of course, if um, uh, if there had been a, uh, uh, a Google Apple uh, app, that would have been harder for them to figure it out because so they just would have gotten this uh, uh, notice that they'd been uh, exposed. Well, maybe not. They'd, they'd all say, where else could we have been exposed and who else could have exposed us? Uh, and that would have been the end of it. Uh, all right. Thanks to uh, uh, Nick. Thanks to David. Thanks to Maury. Uh, we're going to turn now to our interview with Harriet Moynihan. Harriet is a senior research fellow at the International Law Program at Chatham House. She wrote an interesting uh, uh, paper uh, uh, about the application of international law to state cyber attacks. Uh, um, uh, and uh, she's got some, I think, useful background uh, uh, for that uh, purpose. Uh, lots of, of academic uh, experience, but Harriet, you were also a legal advisor in the uh, UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, weren't you? That's right, yeah. So yeah, and I did a number of um, yeah areas of international law um, there. So I was there for nearly 10 years and I had a you know, very interesting portfolio. Well, that's cool. So uh, 10 years. So you you saw it uh, uh, up close. Uh, I, I have to say, isn't it kind of odd to still be calling it the Commonwealth Office? I mean, uh, I understand what the re original reason was. They didn't really want to say Commonwealth countries were foreign, but they are. I mean, uh, didn't the UK sell out the Commonwealth when it joined the European Union? 
Uh, no, I think the UK is still very much, you know, uh, holder together of the Commonwealth and sees the Commonwealth as very much part of, you know, the fabric of our history. Um, so I think, you know, they, uh, yeah, it's a sort of historically anachronistic term in some sense, but I think, you know, the UK is still, you know, a big supporter of the Commonwealth. So it's good to have it in there as a reminder of that. All right. Uh, so, um, and my memory is that the the FCO, as they call it, is a way more powerful in the UK than uh, uh, the State Department is in the US. All of the intel reports up through the FCO, if I remember right, uh, it's uh, it's really the National Security Council writ large. Well, yes. I mean, it has got a lot of influence and um, I don't really know how it compares to the State Department. When I was there, the State Department seemed to have a lot of influence, too. Um, and I think the UK now has its own National Security Council. So, you know, we've borrowed some of the things from the US. Um, but yeah, I mean, the prime minister was foreign secretary. So I think he places a lot of store on the on the uh, foreign office. And the current uh, foreign secretary is a former international legal advisor at the foreign office. So I think, you know, international law is also at the forefront of his mind, which is good. Oh, no, it's not good. Gag me with a spoon. So let's <laughs> jump right into it. Uh, okay. uh, uh, so, uh, what is it? You you write this long and you know very well written and uh, introduction to uh, uh, some of the legal issues down at the bottom of uh, uh, what is uh, uh, appropriate for governments to respond to and when they should feel uh, offended by cyber attacks of one sort or another uh, and it's it's it you know you've you've uh, told me exactly how many angels can dance on the head of this pin I uh, but I I. I have to say, I do not understand why the United Kingdom or France or the Netherlands uh, or the U.S. State Department want to pursue um, international law as a guide to cyber operations. Uh, I, uh, what is the advantage of uh, bringing international law into this as opposed to saying, yeah, I'm sure it applies to some degree and we'll get around to thinking about it uh, in 30 or 40 years when we know how cyber operations work. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think there's a principled reason, which is, you know, international law is about the, the collective, the kind of the global um, approach to the, you know, we might call it the international rule of law that binds all nations. Um, and I think there is real value in that sort of collective over national approach. I mean, if we look at COVID as the supreme example of how, you know, we need to think collectively. And right now I could go out um, and, you know, ignore the social distancing rules and that would be fine for me. But, you know, that will have big, big implications for society in general. And it may come back to bite me if I break my arm and can't get into hospital. Um, so I think by analogy, you know, international law is, is about thinking globally, not nationally. And, you know, even one doesn't if one doesn't, you know, buy that principled approach, I think there's also a pragmatic reason why states need to think about international law in the cyber context, which is, you know, if we want other states, if we want to um, take issue with other states who are carrying out malicious cyber attacks against us, then we need to come up with rules. Otherwise, there's a risk of a, you know, a, a vacuum or a gray area, kind of a dangerous sort of free for all, which adversaries are all too keen to exploit. Well, I, I'm I, I 
beg to differ. If you want to, if you want to see a gray area, just ask four international law scholars uh, uh, what the rules for cyber operations are. You're going to get four different sets of rules. So it's all gray uh, it, once you say international law applies. Uh, uh, whereas if you want to, if, if you want to deter something, uh, 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 certain kinds of attacks on you, uh, it's I, I think a lot more effective to say. If you do that, you will really regret it because uh, international law or not, we are going to kick your butt for doing that. Uh, and uh, that's yeah. a, that's just military strategy. That's international strategy. It's not law. It is us saying what it is we're going to retaliate for. And we might, uh, probably should, be pretty ambiguous about a lot of that, but uh, uh, don't you think that's much more likely to be effective than invoking international law when, unlike you walking around without a mask and uh, uh, ignoring social distancing, there are no bobbies to come tell you to stop? Yeah, well, there's, um, there's a lot of points there. I'll try and unpick them. I mean, I think the point about, you know, gray areas and scholars all having different answers, I think that's partly because, you know, working out how international law applies in the cybersphere is at a relatively early stage. You know, if you think back to uh, trying to regulate the law of armed conflict back in the 19th century, and they started coming out with, you know, restrictions on use of dum-dum bullets. And then it took years to get to the sort of Geneva Conventions uh, or the law of the sea. You know, it's an iterative process. And I think, you know, a lot's happened in the last two years where lots of states are coming out now with their positions on how they think the law applies. But we will get um, different views from different scholars at this point. I don't think that means that international law, you know, isn't valuable. I think it's part of a, of a, of a toolkit. And I think you're right that, um, you know, military strategy will be informed by lots of things, including national security interests. Um, but that doesn't mean that international law can't be part of that. And I mean, if we look at, you know, the DOD's law of war manual, that's influenced by, you know, it's heavily um, influenced by the law of armed conflict. You know, it's based on that. Um, so I think international law has got a part to play in that. But it may not be the first, I think probably what you're kind of trying to get at as well is, you know, is this the top of the list in terms of how we retaliate and how we deter? I would say no. Um, there are, you know, domestic measures, indictments, sanctions, which the US, you know, ha has used and, and will use. But um, international law is very relevant when it comes to attribution, which is, you know, part of states' deterrent strategy um, in terms of being able to name and shame, you know, states that are, you know, caught out doing bad acts. In, in what way is that? Is it, you're, you're say, suggesting that we couldn't do it if uh, we didn't decide that there was had been a violation of international law? Surely we could. We could say, uh, uh, you know, Putin interfered with our election. I don't care whether it's whether we're a sovereignty state or a, a coercion intervention state. Uh, we really resent that, and we want the world to know he's he's um, in our black book. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think you could do it and, and states do do it. But I think increasingly uh, it's more powerful if you can link an attribution of a you know, malicious cyber attack to a violation of international law. And that's partly not so much in the enforcement sense, but more in the kind of political, geopolitical normative sense of states not wanting to be called out as irresponsible actors. And we see that partly because states go out of their way often to try and portray themselves as responsible great powers and as not having violated international law. Um, and we see it in, you know, in the naming and shaming that increasingly goes on with these statements that, that states make about cyber attacks. 
So, for example, you know, last, uh, well, recently there was a, a UK statement um, attributing a cyber attack um, to Russia that took place in Georgia in October 2019. And a number of other states, including the US, joined in. And there's explicit uh, reference in that statement to, you know, the need uh, for responsible behavior and not a violation of international law. It's only one part of the puzzle, but I think that that does add uh, force and value and power to the statement, to calling out those, you know, bad actors. Well, maybe a little, but I, you know, frankly, uh, I, I, it's hard to believe that Vladimir Putin is at all worried when somebody says that he's violating international law, given everything from uh, uh, Crimea to Eastern Ukraine to uh, the Caucasus to uh, uh, the, uh, the brutal uh, tactics used in Syria. In fact, frankly, I think it makes him it, it makes him feel good to have people criticize him for that. Uh, it's like uh, uh, criticizing him for riding bare-chested uh, on a, a stallion. Uh, he says, yes, yeah, part of my manhood <laughs> uh well i don't like to speculate on uh, on vladimir putin's manhood but <laughs> i do think that um you know international rules kind of i think they lower the risks of miscalculation and they do make clear the consequences you know for transgressing the rules and i think when you have a collection of states actually getting together and in the case of say not petia in 2018 there were not like eight or nine states and others in support who all called out that behavior I do think that it, it, it kind of there's a power in that in that in in the optics of that and in the numbers behind it. But couldn't we have done that without uh, uh, without arguing that it was a violation of international law? Well, yeah, these these uh, attributions are you, often you caused, you caused harm inside our territory. We are um, unhappy and we're going to uh, uh, impose sanctions. Uh, uh, that's that's not hard to say. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, whereas. As soon as you say it's a violation of international law, you open the door for somebody to say, no, it isn't. Uh, and uh, and you raise the possibility, very substantial in the case of European countries, that somebody's going to say, oh, that thing I wanted to do because I was mad at you, now I can't do because I just said it was a violation of international law. I had to do stuff like that. Yeah, but international law, um, you know, the debates that are going on about this are you know, they're part of a bigger conversation, I think, about whether states should, you know, act globally and think internationally, and also about, you know, responsible behavior in cyberspace generally. And when we look at the debates that are going on in the UN, um, you know, there's issues about confidence building measures, there's issues about building capacity in states, so they have more cybersecurity. And that whole package um, is about, you know, responsible behavior. And, and I think that international law provides almost the bedrock or the framework for that. So I, 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 let, let's talk a little bit about the UN and, and, and the, the, the discussions there. Uh, uh, this is the UN GGE. Uh, uh, what does the GGE stand for? Government? It's a group of government experts. That's right. Group of government experts, uh, and uh, that arrived at a, uh, a a few sets of principles. Nothing like a, a, a fully developed theory of international law and cyber, uh, but some things that said, you know, in, yeah. in, in wartime, you shouldn't attack people's uh, um, uh, hospitals, if I remember right, uh, things of that sort. Uh, um, and uh, uh, that was a small group. Uh, the next time it got to together, the group was bigger, and uh, the, the Putin and uh, Xi Jinping were less uh, accommodating, and nothing was resolved. And now it's even bigger still. It's like twenty-five or thirty nations. Is that right? Yeah, twenty-five states. That's right. Yeah. 
at that point, you get what I think of as the typical UN uh, dynamic at work, where the United States wants something or the West wants something. Um, uh, the Russians might take it if they can make us pay enough. Uh, uh, and then the, the uh, global South comes in and says, um, in order to get us to agree to this, you have to pay us off. We want uh, more aid of one sort or another. Uh, uh, this is the pattern from nuclear disarmament to uh, 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 bioweapons uh, restrictions. And here, uh, basically saying uh, you need to give, a, give away technology and capabilities to the global south in order to get us to sign on to this. I, I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty common and not particularly appetizing set of compromises that have to be arrived at. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as transactional as that. Um, I think that it's a more complicated picture, actually, at the GGE right now. Um, there are a number of states who are really taking an interest that haven't before, um, that need capacity. They need to understand um, and learn about the law and are really engaging. Um, there's also the complication of non-state actors who are playing quite a big role or trying to in the open-ended working group, which is the parallel UN group that are looking at very similar you know, mandate to the GGE. Um, so you've got actors like Microsoft as well in the mix. And you know, given that uh, you know, these tech companies, as you know, you know, they own a lot of the infrastructure, they have a big role to play in things like the attribution of cyber, cyber attacks, and they've been quite frustrated at the lack of progress. I think the sort of traditional you know, uh, power politics and geopolitics is actually being somewhat diluted by by these sort of broader factors and the fact that we are grappling with how governance should work in cyberspace and you know what role states should play in that you know they're only a bit they're only a part player in this there are many others and civil society included who want to be you know part of that conversation so the, all of that raises this question was which is why would the united states or the united kingdom want to enter into that kind of a uh, 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 I guess the uh, the, the uh, military term for it is a goat rope. Uh, uh, some giant uh, uh, multi-party. Uh, uh, everybody's got an interest, and none of their interests are yours. Uh, uh, negotiation uh, when um, the best you're going to get out of it is one or two things that you care about, and five or six things that, that you don't like but are willing to, to swallow. I. I, I and, and at the end of the day, you get a bunch of vague rules, which anybody can argue, uh, and nobody can enforce. Well, I think it's in the interest of states to have uh, rules. So, um, and I think that those rules are you know, in the interest of the broader community as well. And I think, you know, we could call them vague, or we could say that they provide a framework for responsible behavior with, you know, the possibility of some flexibility of action for states. And, you know, states are, you know, the ones that are the authors of international law, and they're the subjects of international law. Um, and I think you know, it really comes down to a sort of existential question almost about whether you think the international rule of law is a good thing. Uh, and as I say, I think, especially in this global I, I, world. I'm, I'm really, you know, <laughs> I'm raising the question whether it's a thing at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, indeed. The term international rule of law in itself is, you know, some, maybe a confusing term, but international law, you know, it's a product of the post-World War II. I mean, it's been good. Law of Nations is obviously, you know, centuries old, but the post-World War II architecture, which is fundamentally based on peace and security and the idea that, you know, you create a broad set of global rules as we have for the law of the sea and armed conflict. 
which I, I concede, you know, are not enforced a lot of the time. But the very fact that they exist, that they do have, uh, you know, a normative force, they do provide a platform for, you know, international community and reciprocity. Uh, and I think I think that's very important. And it increasingly enables states to, you know, build up their cyber capacity um, with a clear basis of what the rules are. I mean, the U.S. has got well-developed domestic framework and it has used that you know to call out you know to take to take action against its adversaries in cyber attacks but many states around the world don't have that so there's also a role i think of international law to inform those domestic rules you know what what should those rules be um what is you know what do do we think an attack on critical infrastructure you know should be a should be a bad thing for example. Well, of course, it should be a bad thing, and we should punish it, uh, uh, and we should be ready to punish it, and we should be a little vague about exactly how much we will punish it and how much damage you can do before we punish it. But the, that that is the opposite of sitting around and deciding whether that's a, an armed attack or a use of force or an interference with our uh, uh, sovereignty. Um, uh, the, the question is that it ought to be debated not in public where people can say, oh, so I can go right up to this line. That's great. That's what I wanted to know. And uh, you won't do anything. Um, uh, so the uh, that strikes me as exactly the wrong way to uh, uh, come up with a strategy that is likely to deter attacks. And and if I can take a, a pick a, a, an example that comes back to your paper a little more, uh, the mm. 2016 election interference uh, in which... Uh, I would say it's uh, um, pretty clear uh, Russia uh, hacked a number of democratic uh, uh, institutions, the DNC, John Podesta, et cetera, uh, and then doxed uh, him uh, and uh, uh, the other officials in a way that probably had a significant influence on the election. Uh, and they did it to cause pain to Hillary Clinton and maybe to help uh, 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 Donald Trump. Uh, uh, and... Uh, what I was struck by in your paper is I, you were pretty clear that that was not an armed attack. That was pretty clearly not a use of force. Um, and that left us with the choice of either it was a violation of our sovereignty, which you accurately portray as kind of a the, 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 the limpest of possible uh, uh, international violations, or an intervention in our internal affairs, which if I understood you in, you know, most international lawyers would say, well, you have to be coercing the government before you can say it's an intervention in their domestic affairs. And it wasn't clear to me that uh, this 2016 election interference was even a coercive act that violations violates the non-intervention law, which means we are way down on the very bottom of the scale of bad things that one country can do to another, and with almost no ability to respond forcefully to uh, something that I think most Americans resent the hell out of. Yeah, I mean, I think um, on your point about, you know, whether it's a violation of the non-intervention principle. Uh, so the main difference between that and the sovereignty principle, as you mentioned, is coercion. And, um, you know, the way that I understand it to be defined in international law based on international case law, including Nicaragua case, is a sort of depriving of a state of its free will over its sovereign functions. And so, you know, if you're talking about a state's sovereign functions to include a democratic state's functions would include the ability to run a free and fair election. 
And given the huge scale at which, you know, this hacking took place and combined with, you know, disinformation campaign, et cetera, uh, I think there's a plausible case that it could be, you know, could meet the threshold of actually depriving the U.S. of its ability to have a free and fair election. Whether or not well, it actually, you know, succeeded is another matter. That's not part of the test. It, it, an attempt to deprive it is enough. So but, you know, the, the I, disinformation, I the disinformation campaign was was way overstated. It, it had almost no effect. Uh, uh, that was yeah. that was just sour grapes from the Clinton camp. But but the the doxing really did have an effect. But at the end of the day, how was that coercive? So the, 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 if I were defending uh, Vladimir Putin uh, and his horse, uh, I would say uh, I, we reveal true facts to the American public. That's uh, the reverse of coercion. Uh, if, if you think that's coercive, it's because you don't like the truth. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see the actions attributed to the Russians as part of a package of what they were trying to do there. And in terms of, you know, a manipulation in lots with lots of different techniques. And so I would say that, the, you know, the US did lose control to some extent of its ability to have a free and fair election. And if that's what happened, um, then I think, you know, the, the criteria for coercion um, is arguably met. But even if not, I think there are other ways to look at this through international law as well. I think international human rights law has a role um, in terms of, you know, certainly on the disinformation side, uh, the, the, you know, the harm to individuals, including the right to, you know, hold a, a debate in the public square openly, um, the freedom of expression. And then there's the right to self-determination as well. And, you know, coming back to your point about whether that really bothers the Russians or not, I think, you know, it's, it, is, it is powerful to be able to say, you know, we think that electoral infrastructure is something that can, you know, be interfered with, and that's a violation of international law. And, um, and, and there's a pattern, you know, all around the world of this happening. And, and the responses um, to that in international law might include, as the US has done, to designate your electoral infrastructure, infrastructure as critical infrastructure, which is relevant both in terms of the national law of the US, but also, you know, makes it more powerful when you call it out in the international uh, at the international level as well. But but as I understand it, I mean, this is why I, I, I think um, just starting this international law analysis uh, is like putting your tie in a lathe and, and seeing what will happen. Uh, nothing good. Uh, because if we go down this road and start saying, okay, the 2016 election, maybe it was a violation of human rights and then maybe it was critical infrastructure and arguably it was uh, uh, an intervention in our domestic affairs. What do we get to do? about that we, we 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 get to impose maybe countermeasures yeah i don't think that countermeasures are particularly useful at this point i mean it's um it's a debate about you know how countermeasures apply in the cyber context because it's as i said it's at a really early stage of the debate and so states are thinking through the extent to which countermeasures apply but that doesn't mean that international law doesn't have a role it's as i say it's part to me of a smart mix part of the toolkit so you know at the moment, I think international law's role is to sort of reinforce the idea that there are rules that apply to states and you can't get away with violating them at the political and international level. You will, you know, the naming and shaming will take place and it will be backed up by the fact you violate your responsible in international law. And in conjunction with that, then you have your indictments and, you know, you have your your military actions or whatever those might be, which might be you know, retortions, um, you might have diplomatic measures, you know, expulsion of diplomats or other, you know, measures we don't hear about. So there's a whole range of measures. But 
if we, you know, if we just take away international law, then it becomes a kind of national tit for tat. You know, it becomes a bit of, you know, the big players battling between themselves. And I think that risks, you know, a more dangerous situation where potential escalation takes place. Um, you know, what are the chances of, you know, the US and Russia right now trying to get agreement on, on cyber very unlikely in this geopolitical context. Whereas if we put them together in the UN with many other states, there is a conversation going on. And um, in fact, the power of Russia and US in those in those debates is is diminished, which may not be a bad thing because we don't really want um, a hotting up of the dialogue there. So I, I think you have inadvertently uh, identified exactly why everybody uh, in Europe is uh, urging international law. It dilutes the interests <laughs> of the United States uh, and maybe Russia too, uh, uh, and turns it into a situation in which people who are good talkers and respectable countries, even if they are not military powers, get to play. Uh, uh, and certainly, if I were the Netherlands, I would be eager to make sure that this was uh, uh, the forum in which these issues were decided, rather than in the military, uh, although they are damn good at, uh, at cyber. Um, and why is that in the interest of the United States? I, I want to argue that, uh, as you said, this is has been the ground on which um, uh, the post-war, post-World War II order has been based. But that order is under enormous strain for perfectly understandable reasons. Uh, uh, China was not part of that order, and now they're a major player, and they don't feel particularly bound by that order. Uh, And uh, uh, the United States made a lot of sacrifices of sovereignty and economic advantage uh, because it could afford to make them in order to get everybody to buy in. And the U.S. was the country that since the uh, the 1800s has been enamored of the idea that international law was a thing long before anybody else believed it, uh, Americans believed it, I think uh, um, increasingly to people who voted for Donald Trump, for example, the the idea that we need to keep making sacrifices uh, and giving advantages to uh, 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 smaller countries because we can afford it doesn't sound so plausible. Uh, and and so this, this idea of international law may have been based on some, nothing more than the fact that you could sell it to the Americans uh, and uh, it was good for middling powers. Uh, I gave them a role that they otherwise wouldn't have in a bipolar world. Uh, and we've kind of lost the entire context. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the U.S. is one important player in international law and its history and establishment. But I wouldn't say it was, you know, the only one. And uh, certainly U.K. was another one. But international law has been dominated, you know, since its inception by the West. And I do think, you know, in a multipolar world, we need to um, broaden that out and other players need to come to the fore. And not just China, but, you know, the global south. And I think it's important to recognize that the international order, including international law, has held peace and security together since World War II. And the fact that it's under strain isn't because of the order, but in spite of it, it's because um, some states are seeking to reject it and say, you know, actually, it's it's my country first and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not about the international order. And while, you know, the U.S. has made sacrifices, it's true, um, 
it's also benefited from the huge peace and security, you know, the fact there have been very few interstate wars since World War II. Now, I know there have been a lot of internal wars, but, you know, from a state to state perspective, the peace and security has, has benefited, benefited um, the West, shall we say. Um, and, and I think we do uh, need to accept that if you buy into the idea of the international you know, community and international stability and peace and security, you do have to make some sacrifices to your freedom of action. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know the US military cyber strategy needs to be dictated by it it just needs to be informed by it well except that i do think that the uh, uh, at least the obama administration in its pursuit of international norms got confused about the norms that it was prepared to enforce and the norms that it thought as a matter of international law ought to apply. Uh, And uh, those are two very different things. We we could have an idea of what we're going to accept and what we're not going to accept by way of how we're treated uh, uh, in cyberspace. Uh, And that might have nothing to do with international law. Certainly the idea that uh, we have these powder puff remedies for interference in our elections uh, uh, strikes me as implausible. And the idea of bringing in um, uh, the entire global South plus the Chinese to say, well, what rules do you think should apply? Just means that those rules are going to get further and further from Western values uh, uh, and therefore are less likely to inform our decisions about what we're going to tolerate and what we aren't going to tolerate, which I think is going to undermine the role of international law even further. But I'm not going to uh, 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 pursue that further. This has been really a valuable discussion. I'll give you the last word. What's your best case for what the U.S. should be doing now if it believes in applying international law principles to uh, uh, cyberspace? I think the U.S. should use its, uh, you know, its power and its and its influence to come out with its own views on on what interna- how international law applies. So we're waiting for, you know, an explicit statement from the U.S. on that. Many other state countries have done that in the last couple of years, and I think, you know, the U.S. has got some excellent international lawyers in the State Department, other departments, and it would be really interesting to hear their views as part of the conversation. If I may make one final point. Stuart, which is that, you know, I I agree with you that, you know, there are already rules that exist there and we don't want countries coming up with new rules. My point of my paper really is that international law already applies and it's already there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to consider how it applies in cyberspace. So we don't want new rules, as some states are suggesting. All right. Uh, well, I, uh, this is, it's been a great pleasure to disagree with you so much, Harriet. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, your paper is The Application of International Law to State Cyber Attacks, which is, a, uh, and it is a, uh, a terrific and well-written uh, uh, overview of some of the principles that we've been discussing. Uh, I, and it's available on the uh, website uh, for Chatham House. Uh, uh, Harriet Moynihan, thank you so much for uh, uh, participating. Uh, and I want to thank also Maury Shank, David Chris, Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 313 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you've got comments, feedback, um, guest to suggest, send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at stepco.com. Rate our show, please go on and uh, uh, leave us a review uh, 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 and uh, swamp the uh, 
the handful of ideologically motivated uh, one-star reviews for people who just can't handle <laughs> the scent. Uh, and then please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.